for me, I feel like it is innate. I feel like it is something that I've always had capacity for, um, loving multiple people, and that it is something I am happier and more satisfied in situations where I have more than one romantic or sexual partner, that I feel like I am getting my needs met in a way that I do not feel um, if I only have one partner. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the partner. It has everything to do with me and what I need. I think the problem is that we believe this, we've been taught this romantic ideal that your romantic partner is uh, everything. That they meet every need that you could possibly have. That they are the one for some reason. That they, um, they're your other half. They complete you. There's these ideas the way that we talk about love. Um, and I think that that idea is harmful for everyone, whether you want to practice polyamory or not. It's harmful to everyone because that's impossible. There's no way that one person is going to meet your every need. It's just impossible. That was Melissa Fabello, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 165. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me. The podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I don't have any magic answers. I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything, really. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm so over that quick fix approach, honestly. And my guess is maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So we'll be diving into today's episode in a few minutes. But before that, I have two quick things that I want to share with you. The first is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, where we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health. We talk about grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. My hope is that these conversations will make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. That's really important. And then the other thing that I want to tell you is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these conversations, they're 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome, regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations do indeed make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight episode season. This tangible financial support, that's what allows me to keep making new episodes and it pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That includes me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all my guests, and our community recently met the funding goal that makes that possible now. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time with us, and higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show, but I fully believe that where we spend our money, it's a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. So that's what your financial support contributes to. 
And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series called Notes of Grit and Grace. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization, with past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution as well. Over on our Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together after the release of each new season, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to support the show. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Melissa Fabello. Melissa is a feminist educator whose work focuses on body politics, beauty culture, and eating disorders. She holds a PhD in human sexuality studies, and her research focuses on how women with eating disorders make meaning of their sexual experiences. Previously, Melissa worked as a managing editor of Everyday Feminism, one of the largest independent feminist media websites in the world. Her expertise has been featured in The Guardian, BuzzFeed, Self, and Teen Vogue, and on MSNBC and BBC, among others. In this episode, Melissa goes into detail about the five-month social media break she took last year, what her fears were about getting offline, why she needed to do it anyway, and which boundaries she's put in place now that she's back. We also dig into a conversation about her PhD program, the problems of academia, and why she actually wishes she would have quit the program before finishing. She goes on to share some of her research on the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality with us, which leads into a conversation about her own often misunderstood sexual and relationship orientations, like demisexuality and polyamory. Melissa shares how and why polyamory works for her, what some of the biggest myths are about practicing polyamory, and much more. On the whole, this conversation was such a comforting reminder of why we all need to question what we've been told we should do. And I hope that you enjoy getting to know Melissa a little better as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Melissa, welcome back to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me back. I was excited about this. Leading, like, This is one of the last episodes that I'm recording for the season, and I've been excited about talking to you the whole time. So thank you for coming back. Wow, I feel so special. I hope that whatever I say is fascinating. Yeah, it doesn't need to be fascinating. It just needs to be honest, and I love your work. <laughs> I so I can handle that. I think I can handle that. The, uh, the first thing that I want to ask you about um, that has been on my mind since you very first said it, I think, in your Instagram stories, like towards the end of 2018, your theory of exclamation points. Can you <laughs> – I'm like, I'm obsessed with this. Can you share what that is? Can we talk about that? Yeah, I would. I wish that I had like – I wish – because it, it's always visual, so I don't actually know what you call it, but I like theory of exclamation points as, as a way to describe it. Um, yeah. So in the early winter, I had met with my former academic advisor, um, to kind of like check in, talk about life, whatever over lunch. 
And when it was over, you know, he's a very supportive person. And I had texted him afterwards just being like, Hey, it was really great to see you. Like, thanks so much. And he texted me back and his text had so many exclamation points in it. Like, it was like, I love spending time with you too. 10 exclamation points. Like I always learned so much from you. I'm always here for you. Like there were so many exclamation points. And I was like, yo, like I only want to spend time in my life with people who feel this way about me, people who just want to use so many exclamation points because they are so just enamored with me, not just enamored, but also like hold space for the support that I need in my life or like can challenge me or hold me accountable for things, um, who want to see me thrive. And I had posted about it on Instagram. And the next thing I knew, it just sort of grew into this thing that like, uh, I started talking more about and people send me messages like at least weekly about it, where it's just sort of this idea that like people should feel really excited about you. Those are the people that you should prioritize in your life. And we all have people in our lives who like don't necessarily feel really excited about us. And I just feel you, you can feel that and that energy in your interactions. And it's like, I just don't have time for that anymore. Like, I don't have time for people who are like, eh, Melissa's okay. Like, I don't have time for many people, period. I'm very introverted. I can only have like a rotation of five people in my life. Those five people are going to be really pumped to be around me. So that's the basis. Yeah, I think, I mean, this could be kind of like the start of a deeper conversation, but the reason that it resonated with me is because it sounds really simple. Like, yeah, sure. Just surround yourself with people who are really excited about you and, you know, feel exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point about you mm-hmm. like that. Like and, and there's something really simple and resonant of you see that and you're like, yes, I know what that feels like. Right. I know what it feels like when I feel that way about someone, when I like someone feels that way about me. And then but it also brings up the like, huh. I've had a lot of people in my life where that isn't the case, right? And so I'm interested for you because, you know, what you just said, you know, you're introverted and, you know, you have a rotation of maybe five people that are really important to you. And so you don't want to spend time with people who have lukewarm feelings. Was that always the case? Like, was this a perspective that you've evolved into? Oh, that's a good question. I think that, you know, over the last few years, as I've like come into my identity as an introvert, as I've like really understood that about myself, I have spent a lot of time thinking about my friendships. Yeah. I've spent a lot of time thinking about who are the people who I hold close and are those the right people to hold close and probably every six months or so, I really have like a sit down talk with myself about who the people are who I'm spending consistent time with and whether or not they are giving me life or, you know, taking energy away from me um, and making sure that the people that I'm spending the most time with are the people who, like I was saying, like they give me energy, they hold me accountable, they support me, they have emotional availability for me. They, you know, want to spend time with me. When I spend time with them, I don't leave feeling tired or like, or I don't feel like, I don't, uh, there are people who, if I have plans with them, I'm like worried about it all day. Like I'm like, Oh, I don't want to do that thing that I have to do later. <laughs> you know, people who don't make me feel like that. So I think it's a relatively new thing, but it's definitely something I cultivated as an idea. Yeah. The idea that some people give you energy and some people take it away and I should be spending more time with the people who I feel like nourish me, who like, if I'm a plant, they water me, they give me sunshine. Those are the people that are the, those are the ones for me. 
Yeah, it made me, when I was reflecting on this for myself, it made me think of two things. The first, how often I have either directly or through subtle or not so subtle messaging gotten the feedback from people that I'm too much, like too intense, too loud, too much, too many opinions, too, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so like thinking about the people with the exclamation points, yeah, we do, maybe we do need a better <laughs> name for this, but um, thinking about that, it's, you know, people that I don't feel like I have to constantly be on guard of, did I talk too much? Did I say this? You know, were you can just be yourself, which sounds, again, really simple, but where I'm not doing the mental gymnastics like before, during, and after an encounter with people that sometimes I feel like I've done in the past, that came up for me. And then the other thing that came up was, and I mean, this doesn't feel great to say this out loud, but realizing how many times, whether it was, you know, friendships or romantic relationships, that I was in relationships with people because like they had expressed interest or like because they wanted to be in relationship with me, but not actually thinking like, is this a mutual exclamation point feeling thing? No, that's super real. You know, to your first point, I've seen this little meme or this quote floating around on social media. That's like, you will be too much for some people. Those aren't your people. And I like love that because yeah. Um, And to your second point, a hundred percent, I have friends in my life quote unquote friends who I know that for them. And I feel like (laughs) kind of we're saying it doesn't feel good saying this out loud. Like I know I sound like a jerk saying this out loud, but here we are that I know that there are people who think our relationship is much closer than how I conceptualize it. And people who care a lot more about me than I do them. And you know, that's in some ways natural. Like that's just how some relationships look, but yeah. Are those the people that I'm going to consistently give my time to, if it doesn't feel mutual, if I'm not getting, if it's not in some way mutually beneficial, I, I I don't know. I don't want to prioritize that anymore. If that makes sense. Yeah. I've also been thinking about, you know, especially in the arena of friendships, like obviously relationships require energy and effort and input and showing up for each other and all the things that you just said about emotional availability and all of that. And yet when it's the right fit, it doesn't feel like capital W work, you know? And so I've been thinking about that too, of like, how much work is too much work? If we're both like fighting really hard to keep this relationship, is it time to kind of step away from it? And I'm curious on either your experiences or thoughts of transitioning friendships. That is really hard. I have had multiple like friendship breakups in my life, even in the past couple of years, but I'm always the one being broken up with. So I don't, uh, so I'm not sure. Like I really only know that feeling from the receiving end for me personally, if I don't want to be friends with someone anymore, or like, if I just don't feel like I want to put that much energy into it, it's almost, I wouldn't say I ghost because I don't think ghosting is appropriate ever, but I definitely just kind of naturally kind of grow apart from that person. Like I'm not reaching out consistently, for example, or I'm just not giving this, the, you know, a lot of energy to the relationship. And I think that it eventually shifts. That's not even like super purposeful. Like I'm not like thinking about it, but I think that, you know, that kind of happens naturally. I've never been to a point where I've had a relationship with someone where it was so draining that I had to say something or like just completely end the relationship. But I've definitely had relationships with people. Well, that's not true. Romantic relationships I have, but friendships. I've never gotten to the point where I've been like, I have to actually end this friendship. But I think, um, I I wish that that was more normalized and that that was something that we had more kind of, uh, like frameworks or models for how to do that. (laughs) Because I think 
friendships and even relationships with family are totally things that you can end. And if they're painful for you should end, but I don't think we have really a, again, like a model for how to do that. We only really see that happening in romantic relationships, which is too bad. Yeah, I think so too. I also think, you know, maybe in the really extreme cases where the relationship does have to end or be severed, you know, maybe there is something there for that. But I think the in-between is sometimes harder where it's not like something dramatic happened. Like you said, you're not going to ghost them, but this relationship is changing, right? Or it's being deprioritized. Mm-hmm. Or I, um, we had a, a conversation in, on the Real Talk Radio Instagram page a couple weeks ago um, about friendship. And uh, my friend Adam, sound engineer for the show, posed a question basically on like, who's the one in your relationships that does more of like the reaching out, right? Like, are you always yeah. the one who's thinking of people and doing that and just kind of like posed a conversation around that? And that got me thinking too of like, huh, who are the relationships where if I stopped being the one to always organize yeah. the plans or always do that, that the relationships like wouldn't exist. And I've done some like little experimentation of I'm just not going to do that for a while and see if the other mm-hmm. person picks it up. And when they don't, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, okay. Hey, yeah. How about that? Yeah, definitely. I've definitely experienced that also. Although I will say someone threw a wrench in that theory for me because I had said that same thing. Like I was like, I'm just not going to reach out to people. This was a couple years ago, probably. And then one of my friends was like, well, I hear you, but also if you are consistently the one who does the reaching out, that just becomes the norm for the relationship. And if you stop, then it might not occur to someone else actually to do that. And I was like, I mean, I don't know. I feel I have complicated feelings about that, but I was like, oh, that actually does kind of make sense, I guess, in some ways. You might be like, oh, Melissa's so busy because I do get into places where I'm so busy that I don't want to see anybody. Um, so they might just be like, let me leave her alone <laughs> rather than something must be wrong. I don't know. Like, there's Friendships are complicated and we don't, we don't talk about that enough. Yeah. To your point, like there, this stuff isn't modeled really, right? And it's like, yeah. I mean, I was never taught like, this is how you navigate friendships, right? <laughs> right. Exactly. It's supposed to be natural, but it's like, I don't know. Yeah. So pivoting topics a little bit, I'd love to talk about the social media break that you took last year. I know it was impactful for you. Yeah. I have a lot of questions. So why did you decide to do that? (laughs) You know, uh, it's one of those things again, that probably makes me sound like a jerk saying out loud, but uh, when people see you as a resource and especially when people see you as a resource, um, but not necessarily a full person, (laughs) the way that we look at people online, um, there's sometimes a lot, a lot of kind of responsibility placed on you, um, that is unfair and honestly unhealthy. And what I started to find was my audience, I have a relatively small audience, but a very dedicated audience. And I love that. And I, my followers are amazing. And, you know, I try to cultivate some kind of relationship with them. I try to be there for them and answer their emails and answer their DMS and da da da. But sometimes people will ask for things that I think are inappropriate to ask of a stranger. And so for example, I had someone kind of around the time that I was about to take that break, I had someone message me on Instagram who, you know, I do a lot of work with, with eating disorders. And this person had just binged and purged for the first time and they wanted help. They were, they were just like, what do I do? And I said to them, I said, can you do me a favor? Can you send me an email about this? And I will get to it when I can. Um, I can't do that right now. And she was literally like, you're online. And I was like, yeah, but I'm not a crisis hotline. Like I'm not, you can't expect me 
to just be there for you. I don't know you. And having that kind of expectation is really, really unfair. I said I would help you. I just, you know, I'm like getting ready for bed. I don't, I can't, I don't have the space at this exact moment. And she was like really upset with me (laughs) for, for that. And I think people expect you not to have boundaries. And I think people forget that for every message you're sending me about your crisis, I have 10 other of those messages waiting in my inbox that I'm just answering and holding space for, for no compensation, for no mutual benefit. Like I don't, I don't get anything back from that, right? It's a very one-sided relationship. And I just got to a point where I was like, every time I was signing on to like Instagram or Twitter or whatever, I was so anxious. Like I was like, I am so every time I would see the little notification pop up that I had a message, I would like be like, (gasps) like, and and I was just like, this is not good for me. Like I can't do this. (laughs) And I was like, I'm at the point where every time someone wants something for me, my immediate reaction is anger. And I was like, I have compassion fatigue. That's what's going on. And I was like, and I need a break. And so I took a break. (laughs) I was like, I'm taking a break at that has no finite, you know, I was like, I don't, I can't, I'm not promising I'll ever come back, but I need to leave because I just can't do this for my own mental health. So that's what, that's what inspired it, <laughs> I yeah. guess. Did you have any fears or concerns before taking the break? Cause obviously you had been really active and my guess, and obviously correct me if I'm wrong, is that that was a part of your like business too. And that's how you yeah. were get, you know, like outreach and that kind of things and writing assignments and, you know, stuff like yeah. that. So can you talk about, um, like maybe yeah. hesitations? All of the concerns I had were professional. Like I knew that for my life, it would be fine. You know, it also sucks because I think people forget that even if, you know, they see you as a brand quote unquote, that again, you're a full person. Like my family follows me on Instagram, you know, like that's how my mom keeps up with what I'm doing. <laughs> so, um, I think, you know, so there's also kind of that concern is like, I have to, you know, this is a way that people at this point in time, you know, communicate with one another and I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that behind. But most of my immediate concerns were professional. I had someone accuse me because when I was leaving, I was like, um, you know, I was going to keep up with my Patreon because people pay for that. Um, it, it doesn't take that much energy. There's not a lot of back and forth there. So I was like, I, you know, when I was considering what I could and could not do, I was like, Patreon, I can keep up with. So I, you know, was telling people, if you want to pay $2 a month to be a part of my Patreon community, then you'll still get these blog posts or whatever. And someone accused me of my leaving social media being a quote unquote PR stunt to get people to pay me money for Patreon. And I really, I mean, I just deleted the comment and blocked the person, but really I wanted to be like, do you know the first thing about marketing at all? Because without social media, I'm going to lose money. Mm-hmm. And I did. I lost like $150 of, of patrons on Patreon over that time, if not more, maybe $200 worth over that time that I was gone. And yeah, like it was just such a wild thing to accuse me of. And I did worry about it. And, I, you know, I had to realize that I had to practice what I preach. And if what I'm telling people is that your mental health should come first, then that should also ring true for me. Um, and so, you know, I was lucky enough that I had some savings. I was lucky enough that I had some consulting clients lined up. I knew that it was going to be difficult financially, but that I could make it work. And although my partner and I are finances are not combined. Um, you know, I did have their support that in the worst case scenario, um, that they might be able to help with, you know, extra with things like rents, groceries, et cetera, so that I could take that break. So yeah, I definitely had financial concerns, but I was more concerned about my ability to like live a life (laughs) that, 
didn't make me want to scream. So, yeah, no, but I mean, I think that that's a really relatable thing of, hey, I say this thing is important, but I'm not acting like it. And, you know, it could be mental health. It could be anything. I think that's a really, I mean, universal thing of, hey, I preach this thing or I say this is important, but then when it actually comes down to it, what am I willing to change? What boundaries am I willing to put in place? What am I willing to sacrifice so that actually I can also live this thing that I'm teaching other people about or, you know, anything that I'm saying is important to me? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's hard. It's harder than you think. Yeah. <laughs> your, your kind of ideal ideology and your practice are often different. Um, so, you know, how do we, how do we close that gap? So what was the actual experience of getting off social media? Like, did you miss it? Like what changes did you notice in your daily life while you were offline? So mm, that's a good question. So the thing is that this also, and I know we're probably going to talk about this too, but this was combined with, I finished my doctorate degree. So I finished the doctorate and left social media around the same time. So a lot of things in my life changed <laughs> over those like first, you know, six months or whatever. Um, and so I'm not sure what is attributed to what, but being off of social media meant one that being on my phone was useless. I had nothing to do on my phone. So, um, I was on my phone much less. I was looking at screens much less period. Um, because I was, I was gone from social media. My, I really, the people that I was having consistent contact with were always just people who were my friends. It was never strangers for the most part. Obviously I could still get email and stuff, but I wasn't really communicating with strangers. I wasn't given a whole lot of trauma. Um, because that's generally what people are coming to your inbox with is their experiences with trauma. So I wasn't, you know, getting a non-consensual trauma stories and I rested a lot. I had so much more free time between being done with the dissertation and being off social media. I had so much more free time. I basically took naps and read books in that time that I would have spent on those other two things. And yeah, it made a huge difference in my life. Just being able to, again, there's a lot of privilege there, class privilege involved in my being able to do that. Um, and I acknowledge that and it made an incredible difference in my life, just not having to engage. And also like you kind of lose your sense of self on social media. When social media is something that strangers <laughs> are engaging with you with, like it, they have very strong opinions of you that are bizarre because they're based in what you're posting on social, which isn't actually your whole life. It's like a very small slice of your life that ends up on social media. Um, and people will be like, I love you. You saved my life. Or like, I hate you. Everything you do is wrong. And so like, those are extreme opinions to have based on my Instagram either way. And so I also had an experience of coming back to my sense of self. If the only people I was spending time with were people who saw me as a whole person who saw me, you know, in various kind of like stages of, of, emotion and, you know, appreciate that there are uh, many ways in which I do good in the world and many ways that I don't. Yeah. I, I found that I had a better sense of who I actually am as a person rather than what other people's opinions of me are. And that made a really big difference in my mental health for sure. Yeah. One of the things I, I mean, this topic is, I think of interest to a lot of people. It's particularly in, of interest to me because I definitely need some different boundaries around social media. And like, you're definitely someone that I look to of like, okay, like she's made this work. Right. But I recently read, um, 
Calniport's newest book, Digital Minimalism, and that was our like Patreon book club book in February. And we had some really interesting conversations about it. And like a lot of the stuff that you're talking about resonates kind of in that space. And it made me reflect on because I've been sharing personal stories online in some format or another since 2007. Like that's my mm-hmm. entire adult life almost. And yeah. your idea of like this, like the sense of self thing, like sometimes, sometimes I don't want to pull at that thread too much because I get a little overwhelmed of like, who would I be without this? And I can never really know because that's right, like the sliding door that didn't yeah. <laughs> happen. But it, <laughs> it is like an interesting reflection point of, you know, if you're not broadcasting anything, if you're not, you know, a person and also a brand at the same time, like, what does that look like? And it's, yeah, I, I've been thinking about that a lot. Yeah, it's like, I'm, I'm very jealous of people for whom they don't have that experience <laughs> because it's, it's a wild experience that's like impossible to explain to people who don't actually experience it. And I think that coming up, I was always jealous might not be the word, but like, you know, when I saw other people who let's say on Tumblr, for example, where people will ask questions and you post the answers to those questions. I remember seeing people who would just get so many questions. I remember being like, I want to be like that. Like, I want to be a resource for people and seeing those people always be like, y'all, I'm tired. Like there's a thousand, you know, of you and there's only one of me. And like, you know, and I would just be like, oh, like, but that seems like it'd be so great. And this person doesn't appreciate it. Like, that's how I saw it. And then when it was me, I was like, oh, I see now. <laughs> like, I see. Um, and I miss not knowing. <laughs> but it is. It's just, it's a lot. And it's really hard to, yeah, have a good sense of who you are as a person <laughs> when so much of your life is 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 consumable, mm-hmm, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, so you mentioned before that when you first took the break that you weren't sure if you were ever going to come back on. What changed for you? Like, do you remember if there was a specific, like, day or a week when you were like, I think I'm going to rejoin social media? Um. Yeah. I mean, I always figured I would come back. I, I figured that that would happen, that I wouldn't actually never come back. Um, and I remember when I was thinking about doing it, I was like, maybe I, I left in July. And I remember thinking, oh, maybe I'll do this through the summer. Maybe I'll do it through the end of the calendar year. You know, those are kind of my thoughts. And it ended up sometime in kind of like November, I felt better. Like I was kind of feeling like, all right, like I have, yeah, I have a better sense of self. Like I feel like I've like really nourished myself with people. I've rested a lot. Like I feel a lot better. And I started thinking like, maybe I can come back in December. Um, and that is what I did. So yeah, there was, there was like a moment, but it it wasn't really significant. It was more just realizing like, oh yeah, like I think, I think I can do it. (laughs) So yeah. And then, then I did (laughs) for better or for worse. Yeah. And it was interesting again, like being on the outside, like as someone who, right, like enjoys following you and was watching this happen, you know, and when you took the break and then when you came back, you know, I remember like, I think you posted in your stories a couple of times that you were coming back soon and I felt like genuinely excited. And it was an interesting (laughs) thing for me because, you know, the narrative of, you know, if I stop doing this, no one's going to care about me anymore. Right. Or like a lot of those fears that can happen and like to actually see like, no, no. Like if someone really likes what you do and the, the work that you put out there and what you share, like they're going to be excited whenever you're ready again. Yeah. Yeah. And I was, it was a very, it was fun. You know, the coming back, I was like, oh, I'm going to be real extra about it. Like I was like, I was ready. And yeah, I felt like the response to my coming back was so overwhelmingly positive um, that I was like, oh yeah, see, this is the part about social media that I like. Not, not people <laughs> thinking I'm great necessarily, but the, the community aspect, like feeling like this is a community. I add something to this community. People appreciate me and, and they, they're there for me 
in this way. Like these people are strangers, but like, they're just excited about my presence. Like that's a, that's a humbling. Yeah. So I feel like there was, there was this really exciting thing about coming back and being like, Oh yeah. Like no one kind of exactly what you said. Like, I think there's sort of this idea that one, everyone will forget about me and my work if I leave. And then there's the other thing where you're like, the whole world is going to fall apart if I'm not actively, um, engaging in like this form of like activism, for example. And like, that's not what happens. <laughs> Neither of those things happen, it turns out. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's like a nice reminder that people do genuinely care and also that no one's watching as much as you think they are, right? It's like a double-edged yeah. both thing. Like yeah. Everyone was fine. Everyone lived. It yeah. was no big deal. Except my mom, who would consistently remind me that she missed my pictures. <laughs> you know, <laughs> She was okay. She was going to be okay. She's going to make it. Um, so I'm interested in specific changes, whether those were like boundaries or how you, you know, like usage policies for yourself. Because I have found, you know, not just with social media, but with other things that taking breaks is great. But for something that I don't necessarily have a, a wonderful relationship with, or that's been like problematic for a while, the act of just taking a break and then resuming the mm-hmm. same behaviors isn't good enough. So I'm interested to hear like what changed or like what you're doing differently this time around, if anything. Yeah. I mean, when I was coming back, I really sat down and like kind of like journaled that out and was trying to figure out what my boundaries would be. And I set a whole bunch of boundaries. Have I kept them is another question. But the things that I have done and continue to do, one is that I leave social media for the weekend. So Friday night I'm gone and I come back Monday morning. And if it's a long weekend, like a federal holiday, I take that also. (laughs) And so there's that, that's something that I consistently do. I am better at telling people I don't have space. So someone actually messaged me this morning asking me for help with something she's going through in her relationship. And I said, you know, I unfortunately do not have the space today to walk you through this. Um, however, this is a very common question. If you Google it, you can find a lot of resources. You're not alone. This isn't, you know, particularly unique. This happens, you know, but I was very much like, I cannot do this. And so I've gotten a lot better at saying that to people. If I don't have the space, I don't have the space mm-hmm. or explaining to people, I don't answer these kinds of questions, you know, cause I realized there were some kinds of things that I was like, this is just free labor. No, <laughs> I'm not doing it. Stuff like that. So yeah, I've gotten a lot better at that. I don't know if people appreciate it or not, but it's, you know, how I keep myself healthy. And also the other thing that I've been trying to think a lot about is again, that community aspect of social media. That's the thing that brought us all to social media in the first place was like the connections. Um, and so I've tried to think about, okay, who are my like mutuals? Who are the people who, you know, we follow each other, we do similar work, we should be supporting each other. And I try to be there for them more. You know, I try to like, if they post a selfie, I tell them they're cute, you know, or if they are posting on their story that they're having a hard day, instead of just clicking through that, I make sure to send them a message about it. And I think that, yeah, facilitating more of that community aspect has also helped me feel like this is a place where there is safety rather than just anxiety and trauma. So those are some small changes that have, I think, made a big difference. Yeah. And didn't you also uh, limit who's able to comment on your stuff? I think I saw that. Yeah. Oh yeah. On my, yeah, on my Instagram. And that is something that I eventually will probably open back up, but it really, really helps that the only people who can comment on my Instagram are people I follow. So it's like only, you know, my actual friends and family can, can comment. So it's like, I know that my comments are not going to, you know, devolve into like this, like shit storm of people in an argument or whatever. It's basically, you know, that or it's unlikely to happen. And that really helps. So when I say I have a comment, I know it's most likely a supportive comment. And that doesn't mean that I'm not still available, obviously for criticism. If I'm like doing something wrong or I need to be held accountable for something because my DMS are open and I respond to them, but it's, 
yeah, it's helpful to just know that like my comments at least are in some way controlled. It's not good for engagement, right? <laughs> in terms of, in terms of like how to get your stuff like seen by Instagram, like the algorithm. But again, at what point am I going to sacrifice my mental health for, for comments? That seems ridiculous. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, but, and these are the questions we have to ask, right? Like just because yeah. maybe, you know, the platform wants you to use it a certain way, or this is good for the algorithm or whatever. It's like at what cost, right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, and it's been, like I said, I mean, you've been a, a really good role model, you know, of modeling this type of stuff. And I'm about to, you know, leave on a six week hike. And when I get back, I'm like, yeah, because, you know, you have basically no service during that time anyway. So it's, yeah. you know, your rules for social media are kind of different. But I'm like, yeah, taking weekends off sounds amazing or like some of these things. And it's just mm-hmm. like interesting watching the stories that pop up sometimes when we think about making changes like, oh, this would never work because X, right? Or, and a lot of that stuff's not true. A lot of it's either fear or ego stuff or just like, it's yes. become so habitual. Like, what else am I going to yes. do in line at the grocery store? Like, I don't know. Fucking be bored. Just like stand there. Yeah, right. Just like, yeah, like back in 1996 when that's, you know, you were probably 12 or whatever, but that's what you did. Like, yeah, it's, it's amazing. A lot of things, so many people I know who do similar work who are doing digital media work are like, oh, I can't leave because of my job. And I'm like, well, it's my job too. <laughs> like, but I did it. So it's not, it's, I think that we get held back by things that are actually not, not as big a deal in reality as they seem. So yeah, encourage people to leave social media either permanently or for a little while or for a weekend, whatever, but do it. Yeah. And even to like relook at the rules that we have for ourselves around it. Right. And it's okay to put boundaries on it the same way that like, it's not just like chill to come over to my house at midnight. Right. Like, yeah. Okay. So why can't I also have rules of engagement for (laughs) this type of stuff? Right. And just like thinking a little bit more critically. And I guess like on this topic of social media, the last thing that I'm curious to, to ask you about is I've been thinking a lot about, you know, when, when you were saying, you know, like free labor or like people are asking a lot of you, I've been thinking about like, when is it too much in terms of like giving too much of yourself away and like how to honesty and privacy coexist together? Because I believe yeah. that they can. And obviously I value honesty a lot. And also I don't owe people my entire existence, right? And <laughs> I don't know. So I'm curious kind of how you think about that for yourself, whether it's like, oh, there's certain topics that I, you know, choose not to share about or like specifically when it comes to, you know, um, like sharing about friends or partners or, you know, like just how do you think about that space? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, there's, there's several things. One is if it's something that I get paid to do, I will not do it for free. So for example, people, I do consulting. And a lot of that consulting is people who are starting digital projects within the wellness sphere. But some of it is like people want help with their grad school application or someone's like, I want to be a freelance writer. How do I do that? Or it might be someone who's like, I'm thinking about like quitting my job and doing something else. Like, can you help me think about that? And I'm happy to do that with folks um, for my rate. (laughs) And when people ask me those questions for free, essentially what I tell them is, you know, I'll give them maybe a paragraph long answer. You know, I make it, it's not that I'm like, you know, fuck you, pay me, (laughs) you know, say someone, for example, messaged me recently asking about, they're thinking about going, applying to the um, graduate program that I graduated from. And they wanted to, they had, you know, a whole list of questions about, you know, what I thought about it, what I thought about the professors, what I think about this, what I think about that. And I basically was like, I don't have the space to answer all these questions. What I will tell you is this. And I gave them like a couple paragraphs of thought. And I was like, if you want to pay for consulting services, I'd be more than happy to take you through the whole process. And they were kind of like, oh, all right. 
that's different if we're talking about young people. If high school and college students, I basically will do anything for for free. And I do all the time. Um, and I think that's the other thing people have to realize is that I'm doing free work all the time. <laughs> so it's not that I won't do it. It's that you're asking me for extra free work and that I can't do. So like that's an example. Or people often want to know, they'll be like, hey, I saw this. What's your opinion on it? And for me, I'm like, if I wanted to share my opinion on that thing, because it's usually, it's always things that are within my like realm of expertise. So I know about them. If I wanted to share my opinion on that, either I would do it for free already publicly as a, a resource, or I would like pitch an article about it and write about it and get paid for it. Like I'm not, you know, or maybe I would write my, on my Patreon about it. Like I would do something if I wanted to talk about that. Usually what people are asking is like, can you think critically for me? Now I'm like, no, <laughs> what do you think about it? Cause you already know what you think. You're just asking me to put it into words and I'm not going to do that. So like, that is something that I've decided I'm not going to do is like explain things to people mm-hmm. that uh, obviously there's, there's mm, times at which I will explain things to people. If people are asking me like, Hey, as a fellow white person, I'm worried about this, like racist thing I may have done. Like that's one, that's one thing. But if you're just asking me for my opinion on something going on in the community, like that's, if I wanted to share that, I would. And then there are topics that I absolutely will not talk about from a personal thing. Um, and people can't even really ask me about those things because they don't know that they're part of my experience. But there are multiple, particularly experiences with abuse that I've experienced in my life that I do not talk about publicly at all and will not. Or if I decide to someday will be, you know, my choice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, there are some things. Or, you know, sometimes people think because I talk about <laughs> something that I want to go deeper into it than I, than I do. Like I have, um, for example, an experience of an abusive partner in my past who I do, that is something I talk about, um, publicly, but there's only so far I'm going to go. And so people will ask for like more details. So they'll ask for it. And I'm like, no, <laughs> like I, that's not your business. And those kinds of things are like, if I wanted to share that information, I would. So I think people think because you've touched on something traumatic in your life, you want to talk about all of it. Yeah. I don't. <laughs> so um, I'm very particular about what I share and what I don't. So asking people, like excavating someone else's trauma is inappropriate. Even though you think it's because they're open about they're, they're open to sharing about it. Like you are a stranger on the internet. I do not have to tell you anything more than I already have about this situation. That's inappropriate to ask. Yeah, I think about this a lot in terms of like how to be a mindful consumer of content, right? I guess like if we're going to use that yeah, phrase. Yeah. And like watching it in myself, like when I feel entitled to more information from someone, like mm, what's that about? Because like you just said, like why is it not enough for me? Okay, they've written this article about it. That's it. Like if they wanted to share more, they would be sharing more. If they were open to questions about it, they would probably have some kind of a Q&A situation. And this doesn't mean like it's never okay to ask questions or reach no, out to people. Right. <laughs> but it is interesting. Like, And it's interesting too, I've been thinking like – who we feel like we should have access to and who we like respect their boundaries more. Like, does it happen more to women? I would argue yes, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And women of color, even worse. Yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, and it's like, I, th- I think, you know, if I love a book that someone read, for example, there's something like more sacred about like a book that you hold in your hands than work that someone does on the internet that like I'm usually not gonna then go try to find that author and like engage them in conversation. Like, I accept that the book is its own <laughs> thing. And like, it's just yeah. weird, right? Like I have, and I mean, I guess it's not weird. I doubt I'm the yeah, only one that feels I mean, this way. I would but. never do that. Right. You know, and it, and that's the thing. Like if, if someone wrote a book 
let's say for example, that I really connected with, I might seek them out to tell them that because I do think it's important to tell people you like their work. Mm -hmm. Um, if it, if you do, (laughs) and I definitely will do that. Um, I might, because if it's, if it's within my field and I really feel that strongly about it, I might try to connect with them professionally, maybe, but I definitely would not be like, Hey, I read your book. I have some questions. Like, <laughs> I would never do that. But people do that when you like, yeah, you write an article or you talk about something on your Instagram stories. People are like, Oh, let me ask you some more. And I try really hard to make space. Like I do, I haven't in a while, but like I do live Q and A's or I'll do, you know, the ones where you can just like submit a question and I'll answer it. Like I, I try to make space when I have the space. So I just feel like that should be a pretty clear indication that it's not just whenever you want, (laughs) ask me whatever you want. And again, like, yeah, I don't know. It's one of those things I don't know how to explain what that limit is, like what that line is. Cause like what you said, like, doesn't mean you can never reach out to people or ask questions at all, like by all means, but there is some point at which the question crosses a line. Yeah. And it's like, I don't know, it just turns into turns into something else. It turns into like, you are asking me to give you more free shit when everything I'm doing on social media is already free. (laughs) That's, that's not shit I'm getting paid to do. That's just me trying to be helpful. So when it's like, tell me some more about this, tell me some more about this. Give me some, like asking me Googleable questions. Like that is not a good use of my time. You could have Googled what that term meant. I don't have to explain it to you. Mm -hmm. You have the internet, (laughs) right? Yeah. I mean, and I think this is why it's such a relatable and interesting topic because there are no capital A answers, right? It's not like don't reach out or always reach out. Like it's so nuanced. And it's like, I've been trying to look at it, you know, when I said before about, you know, being a more mindful consumer of content, which, you know, obviously I fail at all the time, but thinking about it then from the creator's side of things, you know, okay, where am I making space? Am I going to have like Instagram office hours for lack of a better thing? Like just starting to think through, I've been thinking about, you know, the scalability of things because I feel like right now the volume is quite manageable, right? Like I can answer pretty much all my emails or like, you know, DMs, that kind of stuff. And there will definitely come a point where that's not the case, I think. And so it's like, how do you, you know, put systems in place to do the work that you love and be able to, like you said, have the community aspect, which is wonderful, right? And not get completely burnt out and not, and I mean, I think it's experimentation and, you know, having conversations like this and, you know, but I think there's almost something when I've talked to other friends about this kind of like behind the scenes, like it's like a weird shame feeling of what's wrong with me that I can't handle all of this, right? Yeah. And there's a socialization, like we were talking about marginalization, like women or women of color, et cetera, et cetera. There's also this socialization around, I'm supposed to be there for people. That's what I'm supposed to be doing. And so if someone, it's so hard to say no, it's so hard to set a boundary and be like, I cannot do this for you. Like I do not have the emotional capacity. And it sounds so obvious, right? I don't have the emotional capacity to help dozens of strangers every day with their with their trauma. I I don't, I cannot do that, but it's so hard to say it, especially because you're saying it to an individual and the individuals in crisis, they're not thinking about all the other messages you have. They're not thinking about the fact that you have other shit you have to do today. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that takes precedence. Um, you know, even I try to tell people like, I have people in my personal life who are in crisis. They, I'm prioritizing them over you. Like, sorry, not sorry, but that's, what's going to happen here. Uh, but people will take it very, very personally. And then like, well, if you love what you do, like, why aren't you available? And it's like, you know, at some point you just have to be really strong in your resolve that like, I can only do so much and that's going to have to be okay. 
Yeah. I mean, and I think this applies also to folks who are not necessarily using social media like for work, right? Or like as a brand or as a business. Because I've heard about a lot of this kind of fatigue and things around this, like even just from a social basis, this idea of, you know, wanting to be really helpful or wanting to be really available and that being part of our like likability or ego. There's yeah. like something kind of exhausting. The thing I mentioned that Cal Newport's book before, the thing in it, that was like the most sort of eye-opening for me is he was talking about um, how friendships nowadays, like specifically with text messaging, that there's this sort of unspoken rule that you have to be available all the time, right? That it's like, if you're not texting back quickly, like there's something's wrong. Oh my God, are they mad at me? Did I do something wrong? Like that there's, and it was so funny when he said that, or when I read that, because I'm like, I've never thought about that before. But most of the reason that I cart my phone around from like room to room in my house and like why like find myself (laughs) taken into the bathroom. Oh my God, what if somebody needs something? I don't know that I think that thought like, consciously, but it's there. And then I feel guilty if a friend texts me and I don't get back to them fast enough. And I'm like, there's something in there to unpack and have some conversations with people about. (laughs) Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Or how many text messages I'll start with, like, sorry that it took me so long to reply, you know, but again, it's like, there are two people that I talk to every single day, my partner, my best friend, that's it. If you are not one of those people, I do not uh, I, I will not necessarily answer you within 24 hours. Like it might take me a minute. And I mean, again, we can only do so much. So. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so you mentioned that around the time that you were taking the break from social media, that's also when you were um, finishing up getting your PhD. And yeah. I've heard you say that you don't recommend PhD programs and that you even wish that you had quit yours. Can you tell me more about that? <laughs> yeah, I feel really strongly about it. I feel really bad because people will be like, I need some advice on this PhD program I'm applying to. And I'm like, great, don't do it. (laughs) That is my honest advice. And people laugh and I'm like, no, I'm serious. (laughs) I'm 100% serious. I don't recommend it. The thing about a PhD that I think most people don't understand or any terminal degree is they are only useful if you're going to use them. And by use them, I generally, that generally for a PhD means if you're going to be a researcher or you're going to be a professor, those are the only really two jobs that you need a PhD for. If that is your goal in life, if you're like, I really want to be a university professor, then unfortunately, yeah, a PhD is going most likely to be, um, a requirement for you to be able to do that job. That's a different scenario. What I find, especially now because of the way that our economy is a mess, is that folks keep going back to school because it's available, whereas jobs might not be. And I find that a lot of people get PhDs, especially I feel like in social sciences, like people aren't like, I'm just going to get a PhD in physics for fun. But in the social sciences, a lot of people do, I feel like just to have what they think is going to be to have more information. What people don't realize about PhD programs is you're actually not getting information. You're simply learning how to do research. That is all it is. If you are not going to put that into practice, right? If you're not like, oh yeah, I can spout the, you know, five major methods of qualitative research. If that's not useful for you in your life, a PhD is not going to be useful for you in your life. And the entire process of getting it is not going to be useful to you. It's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of money for what at the end. I always knew that I was doing it just to do it, that not just to do it. I was doing it because for me, I want to, um, write books. So eventually in my career, and I felt like being a doctor would make, would one 
um, be a marketable thing, but also I wanted to be able to know really well how to read research so that I was able to do that effectively. And I also, because I speak at colleges, that's part of my income that I could charge more money as a PhD. So a lot for, uh, for me, a lot of it was about marketability. Um, so I, I had purpose <laughs> in doing it, but do I know more? No, like I'm not a more knowledgeable person. I'm incredibly knowledgeable in a very niche topic, which is all a dissertation gets you. You have like the most narrow question of all time and you are the utmost expert on it. How useful is that? I just, and I think it's, I think academia as an institution, it's oppressive, it's harmful to your mental health. It's exhausting. I just, I, I think unless academia is going to be reformed, it is not a place that people should go again, unless it's something that you really need for a, for a career goal. I think that you would be better off getting multiple master's degrees, honestly. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I mean, so I'm really grateful that you're being honest about this because I think, yeah, these are sometimes the topics we like don't want to touch. Like, of course, it's a good idea to get a PhD or to advance in your field, mm-hmm. right? It's just kind of like accepted. And the thing that I love most about what you just shared is, you know, for you having done the critical thinking of, I want to pursue this because X, Y, Z, you know, I'm going to be able to get paid more when I speak. I'm going to be able to read research better. That's going to help me with writing books, like having really clear reasons. I think there's something that's like universally applicable to other, you know, not just in the realm of should I get a PhD or not, but this idea of like being ruthlessly honest with yourself about the why behind your choices and is it worth it? Like, are you, like, why are you yeah. doing this? What are you getting from it? Is there a better way to get the thing that you actually want, right? And like you said, if it's more knowledge, then maybe it's a master's program or it's something different. But just mm-hmm. like that inquiry process, I think is so important. Yeah. And I think a lot of people aren't engaging in it at all. Like, I think most people are not. They're just like, yeah, PhD, that's the next step, right? And I think the more people you see who are getting them, you start to feel like they're very, you know, they're easy to acquire. And so I don't know. I feel like it's it's very, very interesting. And I think people have a lot of misunderstandings about what a PhD means. And, uh, you know, a lot, of those, a lot of those misunderstandings work to your benefit if you have a PhD, that people think it means something it does not. But it, it is not actually helpful, you know, at the end of the day. And I think, uh, you know, I, th- I think that that's important. Important. I mean, my life has not changed dramatically by virtue of having a PhD. I, I, you know, could update my electric bill to be sent to Dr. Melissa Fabello, but that's, I mean, and I'm not going to lie. It is like a a little fun thing to get, (laughs) but not to the point that it was worth really the exhaustion that the whole process took Mm -hmm. at all. Yeah, so I'd love to dig into your dissertation research a little bit. Can you share the question or questions that you were most aiming to answer when you were working on that? Yeah, so what I wanted to look at, I did a phenomenological study. So there's one of your uh, qualitative research methods, <laughs> phenomenology. Yeah, I don't know what I that word means, but yeah, okay. <laughs> most people don't. So phenomenology means you're trying to uncover um, how people make meaning of a phenomenon. So like people experience a phenomenon and what you're trying to find out is what they, what they feel about that experience basically. Okay. So the phenomenon that I was looking at is skin hunger, which I'll explain in a second, skin hunger in women with anorexia nervosa. So skin hunger is the extent to which you crave sensual touch. It's like the touch version of sex drive, um, which (laughs) surprise, they're two separate things. And so it's the extent to which you want to be hugged, cuddled, massaged, hold hands, stuff like that. And I wanted to look at that because there's a lot, a lot of research that says that women with anorexia have very low sex drives. And what I found was that no one was asking in the research about other forms of touch. 
And I said, well, that seems like a huge gap. <laughs> so that's the question that I asked. I wasn't ever particularly interested in touch, even though now people are like interviewing me about touch. It's a weird experience. I was never particularly interested in it so much as I saw a gap and I was like, oh, that needs to be filled. So yeah, I, um, my PhD is in human sexuality studies. So as a sex researcher, I have a very different understanding of what sex and sexuality is compared to the average person, including other researchers. Most research on eating disorders is done by clinical psychologists. Bless them for it. They are brilliant in what they do. They are not sex researchers and do not have a broad understanding of sexuality. So I found that for me as a sex researcher, yeah, looking at this same conversation with a different purview was really important. Yeah, you just said that you have a different um, understanding of sex and sexuality, you think, than the average person or than a lot of people. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like, how do you understand it? Sure. I mean, uh, <laughs> this was years of, of studying that, that brings me here. So I don't know if I can really perfectly uh, encapsulate it, but I'll try. So basically what I find when I tell people I study sexuality, the first thing that they think of is intercourse or other sexual behavior, that that to them is what sexuality is. Um, and so folks will, uh, you know, be like, what is there to know? Which is already not a good question to ask. Like if, if you think that sex, the act of sex is simple, the sex you're having is probably pretty bad, <laughs> um, you know, already. Um, but also people will think sexuality means orientation or identity. So people, even I know people will ask questions like, what's your sexuality to a sex researcher? That's like a hilarious question because there's so much involved in your sexuality beyond who you're attracted to. So like, we don't use that word to describe that phenomenon. So sexuality, there's something that people can look up if they're interested called the circle of sexuality. It's a model that looks at various aspects of our sexuality. So there's five circles. Let's see if I can name them. <laughs> there's, see, having a PhD is useless. There are five circles. There are um, sensuality, intimacy, identity, sexual health and reproduction, and sexualization. And they each have in within those circles, like different things that they cover. So like sensuality, skin hunger is in there, for example. So his body image um, is in there, you know, something like intimacy or talking about, you know, falling in love, having crushes, sharing, being vulnerable, risk taking. Those are all examples of that and so on and so forth. So when a sex researcher, a sexologist looks at sexuality, we're looking at sexuality as this very broad and complicated experience that we have as people, whereas I find most people think of sexuality in a very narrow, very specific way. But I mean, that's going to be true for any field, right? Like if you're not a physicist, your understanding of physics is narrow mm -hmm. because it is not something you know a whole lot about. You have a cursory understanding of physics. Um, if you, yeah, if you're a physicist, if you have a PhD in astrophysics, your, your, your understanding of physics is, is much deeper. And so I think a lot of times we be like, human sexuality, that's like a fake degree. Like, yeah, what is there to know kind of thing? And it's like, well, that's like any subject <laughs> that your understanding of it is going to be very, um, yeah, foundational compared to an expert's, right? Yeah. That's always true. So when you were doing your dissertation, who did you interview? I interviewed, so for my um, research interviews, I talked to 20 women with anorexia nervosa. For phenomenology, you're generally looking at 5 to 25 participants. Obviously, if you're more familiar with quantitative research, that sounds like a really small sample size, but it's 
you know, on the larger end for qual. Yeah. So I interviewed 20 women of diverse identities and experiences. I had my original survey looking for participants, got something like almost 1500 responses and I had to narrow it down to 20. So yeah. What, what's something, you know, and it, it can just be an example, like one thing that you learned through the research, maybe that surprised you or that like, wasn't what you expected. So technically, so this is complicated. When you do qualitative research, you're not allowed to have a hypothesis. So you actually can't think anything. Interesting. <laughs> so, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. So everything is supposed to be a surprise. Of course you are going into it with some sense of what you might find, right? If you already know the research, everything, everything that's already been done around that topic, you probably have a sense of where it's going, but you technically do not have a hypothesis. And so anything, everything that comes to you should be a surprise. Um, that's idealistic, I think, but that's the, the ideal of qualitative research. Um, let me think for me, Oh, okay. The thing that surprised me the most, something that like, and when it happened, I was like, duh, but like had never considered it before is talking to people with eating disorders about their sensual experiences. Many of them described the eating disorder behaviors themselves as sensual. Like some people talked about like the feeling of hunger as being, you know, complicated emotion for, for them, but like often like a positive feeling for them within their eating disorder where people talked about, there's this thing called body checking, um, in, in the eating disorder field where we're talking about things like feeling for protruding bones, squeezing fat, um, those kinds of things are body checking people, people describe body checking as sensual experiences also. And that for me was like, it was a big light bulb moment that it was, I was like, Oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs> so, uh, I've just found that fascinating. That was probably the most fascinating thing that came up in the research for me as in terms of the actual answer to the question. <laughs> so the answer was essentially, um, that yes, women with anorexia are less likely, um, to have high sex drives. They tend to have low sex drives, but that they were more comfortable with sensual touch. They were much more kind of, uh, okay with, or interested in sensual touch than they were with sexual touch. So that's an important thing to find. Yeah. I mean, and I, I, I mean, and you've shared, I mean, obviously I know you did a lot more research than, you know, what can be shared in, you know, like stuff on that you do on Instagram. Right. I remember, I remember how long ago it was, but you said something, and I don't know this specifically from this research, but that 32% of women report inability to orgasm because they're too focused on how they look. And that mm-hmm. really caught my attention. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, 32%, I think. Um, that was from a cosmopolitan survey, fun fact. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a wild, but at the same time is not like, it's like, oh yeah, for a lot of women, sex is performative. It's a, for straight women in particular, sex is something you're doing for someone else. That's how you've been socialized. And if you're too focused on like, does my butt look a certain way in this position? Can they, you know, like these kinds of questions that you ask yourself, am I making the right face? You know, that that takes you out of the sexual experience for yourself, takes you out of the physical experience, makes it a lot harder for your body to if you experience orgasm, because not all people do, but if you experience orgasm, it's a lot harder to reach that point. Um, it's a lot harder for your body to do its physiological thing, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and then, uh, you know, after you finishing your dissertation, you took a lot of that research and wrote like a more widely available ebook about it, right? I did. Yeah. Because so many people were like, I want to read your dissertation. And I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, it's 300 pages and it's mostly methods. It's not a fun read. So yeah, so I basically took that 
um, information and turned it into a hundred pages <laughs> of an ebook. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's called appetite. I'll put the link mm-hmm. in the show notes. Can you say a little bit about who you think that book's for? Yeah, I really, it was very, very important to me that the work that I do, um, and this is not common in academia, but it was really important to me that the work was for people on the ground. So sufferers, survivors, and service providers are the people that I wrote the book for people who will feel validated in their experiences, people who yeah work with people with eating disorders, especially around sexuality, who want more of, you know, a deeper understanding of that. I think for any people with, you know, body image issues, it can also be useful, but it is really, really, again, it's narrow, but it's definitely mostly for women with anorexia and the people who love them or the people who serve them really having a a better understanding of what is uh, average in their community or in their population around sexuality. Because something I found in my interviews was people would be describing, little did they know, but people would be describing things that research say is like completely average for for this group. Um, And they would qualify it by being like, I know that's weird, or I know that's abnormal, or I know that's wrong, you know? Um, Or I I don't know if this makes sense. They would say stuff like that. And I would be like, actually, this makes perfect sense, yeah. (laughs) So, um, you know, just giving those people some affirmation that their experiences are normal. All, obviously anyone's experience with sexuality is normal. Like just to be clear what, however you experience sexuality is a normal way to experience sexuality, but to show people that their experiences are not, um, strange, you know, that they are definitely within the realm of what is common for that population. Yeah. I find, I mean, obviously I know you're talking about this through the lens of a specific topic, but sometimes I wish that I could publish the contents of my inbox just because of how many emails are, I thought this was just me, but I know this is strange, but, and like, they're literally Mm -hmm. all saying the exact same stuff. And I want to be like, you know, we're not alone. We're not alone. We literally all, you know, we think we're these like special snowflakes (laughs) and we're the only ones with these like fears and concerns and challenges and like shames. And I'm like, nope, it's so cute. (laughs) We all have it. Where it's all our, everyone's problem. Yeah, no, yeah. super real. Um, I know this is like kind of a, a broad question to ask, but before I guess we move on to another topic, you know, when it comes to the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality, is there something in particular that you would love for folks to know or to think about? Huh, that's a good question. I think, I, I think for me, it would be just that that intersection exists, <laughs> that there, there are experiences at the intersection of eating disorders and sexuality that are, you know, not necessarily that they only happen at that intersection, but that there are things that happen at, at, the, at various intersections there um, that are worth looking at and that are um, just like important. Like, I think that a lot of folks just don't, it is, it's a narrow thing to look at. It's a very narrow thing to look at. And so people don't take it particularly seriously, but I think actually we need to do more at that intersection and look at it more deeply, um, and take it seriously. Yeah. I mean, so I guess following that thread a little bit, is there anything that you're particularly interested in exploring next when it comes maybe to this topic or, you know, even something else where you're like, I'm done with this temporarily and I'm interested in this other thing? Huh? I think, Hmm. I think the thing is when you, when you're working on a project that that's, that's that large, you're looking at it for years. And I think that I'm definitely at a point where I don't want to look at this information anymore. Like I'm so tired of this document. Like, you know, I'm tired of the dissertation. The ebook was like, I'm so happy that it's like doing well and people are excited about it, but it was just me prolonging my relationship with the document. At this point this year, I should probably work on actually getting journal articles published um, on the topic. Uh, so I'm going to have to continue to look at it. I think it's one of those things where I would like to move on from it eventually. Um, but, 
when you do this kind of research again on such a niche topic, you become the only person who knows that information. And I'm happy to be that person, but I would like to kind of move on with my life <laughs> uh, when possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to like do service to the work and like you said, do some journal, art- journal articles, do whatever else is in the space. And then, oh, actually there's other things I'm interested in too. <laughs> yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. There are other things I would like to talk about beyond this very specific question. Right. <laughs> well, I guess on that, let's switch topics a little bit. Um, One of the things that I know that you enjoy discussing is your often misunderstood sexual and relationship orientations. Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I like talking about it so much as it's necessary. (laughs) Okay. Okay. That's fair. (laughs) For sure. I think, go ahead. Do you have like a question or do you want me to just ramble? Um, What is my question? Well, I mean, yeah, I think that's a good distinction of, I don't know if I like talking about it, but because it's misunderstood, I have to, right? There's like something in that as well. Um, I guess Mm -hmm. let's start with demisexuality because I think that's a word that a lot of people might not know. What does that mean to you? Yeah. So for folks, um, a lot of folks are getting to be more familiar with the idea of asexuality, which is awesome. Um, asexuality or being asexual, meaning that you, um, feel uh, little to no sexual desire or like interest in engaging in sex. You might feel like the, the feelings of like, Oh yeah, like I would you know like to be intimate with that person, but not, um, necessarily wanting to engage engage in sexual activity. Different people who are asexual have different experiences of what that looks like for them. And, you know, I want to try to give a definition of that that is broad enough to hold everyone in it. But the spectrum of asexuality is something that people don't know a whole lot about. That asexuality is not just simply, I am not interested in sex, right? That that asexuality can, can be a broader experience than that. And different people who are asexual, that doesn't necessarily mean the same thing for everyone. And part of that spectrum, an identity or experience on that spectrum is what's called demisexuality, or some people call it gray sexuality, where some folks, a lot of folks who uh, identify as demisexual, we kind of explain it as needing to have an emotional connection with someone before being interested in a sexual relationship with someone. For me, as someone who identifies as demisexual, there's that. It doesn't have to necessarily be an emotional relationship, like a romantic relationship, but there has to be some kind of relationship there with a person. Like I could never have a one night stand. Like I just could not. Like that to me makes no sense. Like I can't imagine that being enjoyable. I know that it is for people. For me, I can't imagine that. Or I've never seen someone and thought, wow, like that person is so like aesthetically attractive. I want to have sex with them. Like I've just never, it stops it. Wow. That person is so aesthetically attractive. Like that's it. That's, that's the, the extent to what I see in people. I might be like, oh, I'm attracted to that person. I would like to get to know them better and see where things go. That kind of thing. Yeah. But I think folks, folks are really surprised when they find out that that's a thing. And it's like, does it, should it have to be a thing? Like, I feel like we all experience our experiences of desire and arousal really differently. And that should just in itself be fine. Mm -hmm. But I think it's very affirming for people who have that experience because we live in a culture that is, that is consistently pushing sexual attractiveness and sexual activity and sexual behavior as things that are, um, primary. And I think that for folks for whom they're not, that they come as more secondary. It's, it's nice to realize that, Oh, there, you know, there's a word for that. Or there are people who also have that experience. Like you're not weird (laughs) if that is your experience of sexuality. Yeah. I mean, and sort of the nuances of this, I feel like are so often not discussed. Like we look at what's modeled in terms of like 
pop culture, right? Or television or movies and like how sex is portrayed. And like, there's just, and obviously this is a kind of painting with a broad brush, but I think that a lot of these nuances aren't talked about or they're lost or, you know, we grow up believing, you know, I'm a woman, so I'm supposed to experience sex like this way, right? Or I, you know, just these types of things. And I mean, part of it, it's funny, like hearing you talk about this is affirming for me in like the reminder that you and I are different, right? Like I think that can be helpful too sometimes, like when someone's very clear about, you know, oh, this is what I need or a one night stand wouldn't be appealing for me or I've never looked at someone and, you know, thought they're attractive, like let's go bang right now. And I'm like, oh, I definitely Mm -hmm. have, like that is not my experience. And like, it's just nice. It's like a nice reminder that people experience things differently. And like part of it for me, the story that I always grew up with was, you know, I mean, any, any sentence that starts with like, nice girls only do, you know, whatever fill yeah, in the blank yeah, is, yeah. is going to be trash. But, you know, this idea that I have to be in love in order to feel yeah. this way. And there's something that's wrong with me if I want sex outside of this like really mm-hmm. deep emotional connection. And I think that's also a common socialization thing, right? And totally. so hearing, oh, okay, it's fine to actually feel lots of different ways, which as I say yeah. it out loud, like sounds stupid. Cause like, of course it's fine. <laughs> and yet in practice, we do it? need that reminder. Yeah. And I think especially for, for me, it was almost like an opposite experience where, yeah, hundred percent definitely got the same socialization growing up. And, you know, obviously, you know, we, we get steeped in these values and we kind of internalize them and then finding feminism and being like, oh no, like that doesn't have to be true. But then being like, oh, is what's feminist just like having sex whenever, <laughs> like, but I don't want that. And then having to wrestle with that being like, am I less of a feminist? Because for me, like I do need an emotional connection to enjoy sex. Like, is, does that make me, am I now falling into this stereotype of women? And that's not what I want to do. And having to come to a realization that sex positivity, for example, is not about being up for anything. That's not what sex positivity is, right? Sex positivity is being like, understanding, having an understanding of your own experience, your own desires, your own needs, your own boundaries, and feeling uh, empowered to go after those things and coming to a point in my own life where I'm comfortable saying to future, you know, to romantic partners or potential sexual partners, like, Hey, it might take me a minute, um, to want this with you. It might not, right. That it's that sometimes I feel a connection with someone on a first date and I would be down, you know, it's like, but the idea is that that connection is important to me, that that is something that I need and being able to express that to people with no shame, no apology, just, this is what my experience is. You know, does that work for you? That is such a powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah, being able to be honest with yourself about what it is that you need and want and then being able to, like you said, advocate for it, speak to that. I mean, it was really – I'm going to be 34. I think you and I are close in age. I'm going to be 34 this summer. And it was maybe a year and a half ago that I finally let go of the shame of actually sex is really important to me. And like that felt – like even saying that now, like that feels like – like revolutionary within me to be like, it's actually okay that this is something that I want to prioritize. And what that looks like for me is up to me, right? I think sex can be important Mm -hmm. to lots of different people and it looks lots of different ways, like what the end result is. But even being able to say like, yeah, this is important. You know, if I'm going to have a romantic and sexual partner, like this has to be something that we're compatible in this way. And I think in the past it was, you know, kind of like, oh, well, they like me and I like them. So it's fine if this doesn't really work in this like area of our relationship. And I'm like, no, now to yeah. be able to own that feels very empowering. Yeah. It, it's, it's amazing to just realize, yeah, that what I, what I want is fine. <laughs> and the goal is to find hopefully someone who wants something similar so that, you know, that, you know, works out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, moving on from specifically, you know, demisexuality and talking more about polyamory, are there any like myths or misconceptions that you'd love to clear up about that right off the bat? 
Yeah, probably everything your audience just thought of when I heard the word polyamory is what I would like to clear up, honestly. Uh, I mean, right, right off the bat, we just went from talking about demisexuality to polyamory. Already, there's there's a misconception that I've busted because there's an assumption that polyamory is about sex, and mm. it is not, and um, or not inherently, right? As someone who's demisexual, for me, polyamory is really about building connections with other people, which can include sex. Um, but that that is not the the end goal um, necessarily. That that's not what that or not necessarily that's not the end goal. I guess, but it, it's not my primary goal. Um, I think people's idea of polyamory. I mean, any meme that you look up is accurate. It's like people really think that polyamory is about like orgies um, or about like not having emotional connection to people, which is hilarious. Cause that's like the exact opposite of what polyamory is. When people be like, yeah, there's no, it's just about being able to have sex with whoever you want. And if, if you have a, a primary partner, which is not necessarily how people, all polyamorous people work, but if you have a primary partner, you probably don't care about them that much because you're open to having sex with other people, which is a ridiculous idea. There is just Oh, so every, everything that, that the average person thinks about polyamory is usually wrong. And I would like to clear it all up. <laughs> I don't know if we have enough time. <laughs> yeah, no, I, mean, but I, I think that's a great place to start. So the first thing that I was going to ask, because I guess this like shapes the terminology, is it something for you where you're like, I am polyamorous or is, do you think of it as like an identity or something that you practice? Different people feel differently about this. So I want to make space for that. For me, I feel that it's innate. I, for me. I, some people it's a, you know, something they decide to practice either, you know, politically or, or whatever. It's just something that they decide to do, but they would be perfectly happy also being monogamous. Um, if that's what they decided they wanted. And obviously this, just like any experience can, um, change depending on where you are in time. For me, I feel like it is innate. I feel like it is something that I've always had capacity for, um, loving multiple people and that it is something I am happier and more satisfied in situations where I have more than one romantic or sexual partner that I feel like I am getting my needs met in a way that I do not feel if I only have one partner. And that has absolutely nothing to do with the partner mm-hmm. it has everything to do with me and what I need. I think the problem is that we believe this, we've been taught this romantic ideal that your romantic partner is everything that they meet every need that you could possibly have that they are the one for some reason, that they, they're your other half, they complete you. There's these ideas, the way that we talk about love. And I think that that idea is harmful for everyone, whether you want to practice polyamory or not. It's harmful to everyone because that's impossible. There is no way that one person is going to meet your every need. It's just impossible. And we can't hold people to those standards. For me, polyamory comes out of that in such a way that's like, oh, I shouldn't even expect this person to meet all of my romantic or sexual needs, not just any, you know, my needs, period, but also that maybe the idea that this person is a perfect romantic partner for me or that I have no other romantic wants or no other sexual wants with this person, I think that that also can can be sort of this freeing idea of that, like, no, that that person does not have to be that, that I can have multiple people in my life giving me that, just like we have multiple friends. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you say that it's something that's innate for you, but my guess is that you have had, you know, multiple relationships that weren't polyamorous, right? Like, was it a kind of thing yeah, that you I like mean, tried like, things that didn't work? <laughs> yeah. Most people that I know were monogamous and then realized that they didn't have to be monogamous, right? It's one of those things that society tells you is just what you do. And so you do it. And then you're like, wait a minute, 
there's other options here. I don't have to do this. I don't have to do this this way. This does not make me happy. For me, that was a long, 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 long journey that took my whole life <laughs> until relatively recently to realize that that was something that I could, not just something that I could do. I knew the polyamory existed, but being like, oh, that is something that I want took me a long time. And I think that's most people's experience is like, there's something about monogamy that isn't working for them, but that they're consistently shamed into believing there's something wrong with them. I was actually seeing a therapist when I started considering polyamory and my therapist who I no longer see, but my therapist was like, I think that this is an indication that you have issues with intimacy. And I was like, I don't think that. <laughs> I was like, I think that my intimate relationships are incredibly intimate and incredibly have so much depth that it's more like my need for that for that fulfillment is too deep. <laughs> so I don't I don't think it's that I have issues with intimacy. I have a history of cheating. A lot of people I know who are polyamorous have a history of cheating. And you know, my, that therapist had also been like, well, maybe you're just using this as an excuse to cheat. And I'm like, that doesn't even make sense because cheating is about betrayal. If there is no foundation for betrayal in my being with other people, the betrayal doesn't exist. Therefore cheating does not exist. Mm -hmm. Not that you can't cheat in polyamory because you can, but the, the boundaries of that are different. Yeah. So I think there's just this idea that monogamy is what you do. And if you can't do monogamy, that's, that's your problem. You've done something wrong. And just coming to the realization that's like, maybe I don't have to uh, problematize my experience. Maybe I just need to, you know, create space around my experience. That's different. Yeah. So then in making that transition, it sounds like maybe some of it was a relief for you, but I would imagine some of it was also potentially challenging. Can you talk about that space a little bit? It's so hard because we don't have models for what polyamory looks like, you know? I mean, you do if you get deep into the polyamory community, but like in the mainstream, you don't have uh, an idea of what that is. So it's like, what do I do? How do I do this? And different people come to polyamory differently. For me, I um, had and still have a long-term partner that we had had probably six months to a year of conversations about polyamory before we decided to try it opening up a relationship is scary. I don't know if it's scarier or less scary to be like a single person being like, okay, I'm polyamorous now, <laughs> you know, or like I, I'm going to live this lifestyle because there is a, there is a danger that you, that it turns out that it's, you know, actually maybe the relationship that's a problem or polyamory harms a relationship or one partner decides they don't want to be polyamorous anymore. That's a possibility. I think though that it's a myth or a misconception that opening a relationship opens the relationship to problems. Closing the relationship creates problems, right? People will always be like, oh, I'm thinking about maybe I want to try polyamory, but I'm afraid it will ruin my relationship. And I'm like, it, there's clearly already a problem then, right? Like there's already an issue. You're not happy in the, however your relationship is taking form. So monogamy could also end your relationship. In fact, monogamy ends more relationships than arguably polyamory does, because depending on the study that you look at, up to 75% of people cheat on their spouse. So monogamy is not working for you if you're cheating on your spouse, right? And so the idea that, oh, by opening the relationship or by trying polyamory, that is inherently going to ruin the relationship is ridiculous. It comes with a new set of challenges. 
Is it more challenging than monogamy? No, but it's a different kind of challenging for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm interested in what your experience was with like the people in your life who were not, you know, like you said, like your partner at the time or like other potential partners, like talking to your family about it or your friends. Like what was that like? I don't really talk to my family about it. Um, because I talk to like my sister-in-law about it a lot, (laughs) uh, more so than I talk to, you know, my brother. And again, like my family follows me on Instagram, so they must know (laughs) because I talk about it there, but I don't talk to my family really about it. I tried talking to my mom about it once. It was a weird conversation. So I just let it go. So that's not really a thing that I even really experience. And I also think that that's okay, that Mm -hmm. that isn't okay to be like, you know, I don't talk to my family about this because they don't get it. So what's the point? Or it makes them uncomfortable to the point that now I'm uncomfortable. So why am I putting myself as an adult? Why am I putting myself in that situation? I had enough of that being a queer teenager. I don't like, I don't need more of that as an adult friends. You know, I'm really lucky that I have friends in my life who most of my friends are, you know, they're therapists or they're, you know, other people interested in sexuality. They're queer. They're a lot of people in my life that I'm, that I'm close with already had some sense of what this looks like. Um, so it wasn't hard to explain, Um, there are people who I do, you know, there are people in my life who don't get it. Um, I don't really talk to them about it for that reason, any more than you would talk to someone about some other kind of experience that you have that they're not supportive of. You just kind of, (laughs) that's not a conversation we have anymore, really. Um, or I limit it in some way. Mm -hmm. And I also know people who have had experiences where people have been really, really rude to them and really just misunderstanding or like make fun of them for it or just like, you know, are just really misunderstand it and make, make wild assumptions about, about our lives. So it's an interesting experience for sure. But I've been really, really lucky that most of my close friends have, have had no concerns or confusion about it at all. Yeah. I mean, I I think the point that you're making is really important about, you know, the thing that you want to do or the thing that's, you know, potentially the best fit for you. Other people don't have to understand it, or you actually don't have to talk about it with everyone. Like, I think there's, I mean, we have the desire to be like liked and understood. I think that's, you know, a relatively common thing. And so it's, it's nice. Right. And we're like, our family's on board, our, you know, our friends are on board, this and what, and sometimes that just doesn't happen within, not just in terms of, you know, relationship structures, but anything. And so this reminder that like, you actually can just like choose not really to talk about it with people again sounds maybe simple but is I think pretty profound yeah absolutely I mean if I got to a point where I was in a relationship with someone else where that relationship was very very you know obviously very important to me and like that relationship was growing in such a way that it would be like time to meet the family like that kind of relationship that would be different and I would you know face that conversation with my family more head-on um but Currently, I don't have that experience, and so it just does not feel worth trying to get them to understand. Yeah, you know, because mm-hmm. it'd be like hypothetical sort of. <laughs> so it just doesn't feel worth the confusion of everybody, and also the like uh, having to educate people who are resistant to it. It just doesn't feel like a worthwhile use of my time until it becomes something that is necessary for my happiness. You know, mm-hmm. I think is a different story. Yeah, um, so, I mean, for me personally. I about a year, year and a half ago, kind of went down the let's read all the books about polyamory and non-monogamy. Like it's something that I'm potentially interested in. So a lot of these questions are, I don't know, like selfish or (laughs) selfishly motivated. But (laughs) one of the topics that came up over and over in a lot of these like books and podcasts and stuff, obviously, is the topic of jealousy, right? And I think there's, and I think, you know, maybe some of that is misconception, but also I think a lot of that, that's just like a very real 
question. There's something there. And, you know, not that a monogamous relationship, like jealousy can of course exist there too, right? It's not unique to polyamorous relationships, but from like your personal experience, can you talk about jealousy? Yeah. You know, it's funny. I feel like if I could never get one question about polyamory again, it would be the jealousy question. It's, um, the number one question people ask. And it's like, y'all, we all feel jealousy. Every person in the world, like jealousy is a normal thing that everyone feels. When people ask me, how do you deal with jealousy? I usually just turn it back to them and say, how do you deal with jealousy? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Because the answer, regardless of your relationship structure is the same. You talk about it, right? Like that is the ideal answer is you say, Hey babe, I'm feeling jealous about this thing. Can we chat about it? And what can we do um, to change that? People feel jealousy in, in all kinds of relationships. You can feel jealous that your partner is spending a lot of time with their best friend and not enough, you know, maybe you feel like you're not spending enough time with you. You could feel like, Oh, I think that this, I think my partner, you know, is hanging out with this person who's like, or maybe working with whatever it is, this person is more attractive than me. And I'm feeling insecure that, that those kinds of things can happen regardless of the, the structure of your relationship. I actually think polyamory inherently creates so much more space to talk about jealousy, which is actually the positive thing. Um, the thing about polyamory is if you're, if you're practicing polyamory, your value that you hopefully are holding for that practice, if you're practicing it, you know, consensually is that my partner does not belong to me. My partner is their own autonomous person who doesn't belong to me. And our sexual or romantic relationship is not the exclusivity of it is not what makes it powerful. If you already believe that from a values-based standpoint, which I hope you do if you're practicing polyamory, it's a lot easier to be like, why do I feel jealous then? Mm-hmm. You know, to be like, okay, I feel jealousy. What's that about? How can I deal with it? Because I don't believe that this person shouldn't be able to do this thing. I want them to do it. So what's my feeling about? And you come to a different place with your jealousy. What most people do when they feel jealousy is they limit what another person can do. I feel jealous, so don't do this thing, right? That is already a problematic way to go about relationships with people. It's manipulative. It can be abusive. Your jealousy is not someone else's problem, really. Like your jealousy, your feelings are not about what another person is doing. They're about your feelings. So you have to get to the root of why you feel that way. And then you can work on it from there. So when people say, what do you do about jealousy? Is it's like, I have to sit with how I feel and why I feel that way and then communicate that if necessary to other people and figure out what the problem is. If the problem is, Hey, my partner is spending more time with someone else and I feel lonely or I feel neglected, right? That's a different feeling from, I feel jealous. That's, I feel lonely. I feel neglected. So that is what I deal with the actual root problem. So it's like, Hey, can we have a date night? Hey, Maybe, um, I want to spend more time with you. Like, is it possible for you to do that with your other relationships? Right. Or if it's again, like I feel jealous because my partner is with someone who I think is better than me in some way. Um, again, that's not actually jealousy. That's me being insecure. That's Mm -hmm. my problem again. (laughs) So I feel insecure. What do I do about that? And the answer is never going to be, Oh, well, my partner can't see that person. You know, (laughs) that's never actually going to solve it. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I asked the question. I, my assumption before I asked was she probably hates getting this question. <laughs> it's fine. I think it's important to ask. I guess what I'm saying is for all of you out there who are wondering what polyamorous people do about jealousy, stop asking that question because it's, it's not as complicated as you think. 
Um, and also there's about 4,000 million researchers, res, what I want? resources on it online. So you can Google it, yeah. um, but I'm happy to talk about it in this context. I just want people to stop DMing me about it. Well, I think definitely, right? Like, I, But I, I think – and obviously just this topic alone could be like its own multi-hour conversation. But I think one of the interesting things about making a non-mainstream choice, whether that's, you know, polyamory or like literally anything, right, that's like not yeah. going to be the mainstream, is I feel like it becomes like a really powerful incubator to ask questions that the mainstream needs to be asking. Because to your point, like jealousy maybe comes up up more or seemingly would come up more if someone's, let's say, opening their relationship or making this transition. Like maybe you have to confront the jealousy thing as an example that maybe you just, you kind of brush under the rug or don't, you know, like you don't deal with it in, you know, maybe like I'm not, and this are all just like kind of generalizations, but it's like, everyone could benefit from this conversation, right? Of the like taking responsibility for your own feelings, like what's underneath that, right? And it's like, we're not necessarily forced to do that kind of excavation, maybe in a different relationship structure. Yeah. I mean, I really think that when you explore polyamory and you explore how polyamorous relationships work, it's really about having healthy relationships, um, healthy communication in your relationships, just more of it. So I feel like anyone could benefit from learning more about how people deal with polyamory because it's really, really comes down to communication and communication is important for all relationships. Um, it's yeah, having a really strong hold on your own emotions. It's having conversations with people that are hard in ways that don't blame them for your feelings. Those are all things that are important in, in, in communicating with partners and other people, period. Yeah. When I, again, started looking into this for myself with the jealousy thing, that the, was kind of the biggest eye opener for me is how much, and again, this is maybe like a pop culture thing um, and just the way that, you know, relationship narratives are portrayed that like jealousy is seen as a good thing or like a sign of love, oh, right? Yeah. Like he loves me because like, he only did this because he was like crazy jealous. So that must mean that like I'm irreplaceable and really special. Mm-hmm. And I had never questioned how problematic that is before. Yeah. And I don't know. I was, so that's another it's reason that I really like this topic. Bad. I used to, um, so I used to do domestic violence prevention education. So I'm very, uh, very trained in domestic violence. And one of the questions we would ask our students, because we would do workshops with middle schoolers and high schoolers, one of the questions we would ask them on like the first session was, you know, do you feel like jealousy is a sign of love? And they would be like, oh yeah. And that's not just something that kids think or young people think. That's something that most people think that jealousy is something that happens when you love someone. Jealousy is not a bad emotion. We all feel jealousy. Jealousy is a perfectly normal part of the human experience, but how we deal with that jealousy is important. And some of the ways in which people wield jealousy are abusive. And we romanticize a lot of that, right? No one should like punch someone based out of jealousy, <laughs> you know, like that, or like people will talk about, I love this when this happens, except I actually hate it, which is when people will talk about domestic violence as a crime of passion. They'll be like, he loved her so much that when he saw her with someone else, he felt like if I can't have you, no one will. So he killed her. I'm like, that's actually, that's a very common narrative. And it's abusive. It's not romantic. It's that's horrifying. And that comes from a place of, of jealousy that is far, that's extreme jealousy. That is jealousy that is unchecked. Um, and we have to be very careful about what we do in the name of jealousy, right? Again, totally normal emotion, but we have to be careful of how we act in jealousy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I remember, I don't know how long ago this was, but you posted something in your Instagram stories where I think it was your partner's partner came over for dinner, right? Like you you made Mm -hmm. pasta or something. And like, even that I'm like, 
okay, this is the type of thing. Like, I think, I mean, I don't know what the comments were that you, you know, got from people, but I feel like that's a thing to be like, oh my God, like I would be so jealous or I don't know how you handle that. Or, you know, like it was interesting yeah, to watch I mean, you talk about that in such like a lovely light. And, you know, and there are people, the thing is, so metamors is your, your partner's partner. That's a fancy word for it as a metamor. People, um, have different relationships with their metamors. Some people are like, we have no relationship at all. <laughs> and some people are, you know, what, whatever people's ideals are very different for me. I feel like if my partner is with someone who is giving them something, <laughs> right. That's they're clearly satisfying some need that they have. And especially if the relationship is, you know, has depth or like there's, there's an intimacy there, there's love there, something like that. Like that to me, that's now family is how that looks to me is like, that is someone who's taking care of someone I love. That is not someone I should be jealous of. That is someone I should be thankful for. And there's this idea in polyamory, this word, we may basically just make up a lot of words in polyamory, but there's this word compersion. And compersion is basically the opposite of jealousy. It's like the feeling you get of joy seeing someone you love happy. So like another example of that would be, I know parents experience it a lot with their children. That like you as a parent take your child to Disney World, not because you want to go to Disney World, but because you see the look on your kid's face, right? Being in this fantasy world. And that gives you this like beautiful feeling, right? Watching children is amazing, right? You watch children discover the world and like you remember there's something that pops up in you of this joyful feeling of discovery that like rain is no longer exciting to you, but to a kid, sometimes it is. And you're like, wow, you know what? Rain is actually miraculous. And I feel like compersion and polyamory can also look like that which is surprising to people that it's like, so right. something super simple. My partner is a film writer. My partner loves movies. I don't, I just don't really like movies. And so it's not like a point of contention or relation in our relationship, but like I will never be able to give them the joy of going to the movie theater. It's just not something that brings me joy for them to be able to do that with other people. That is joyful for me because I'm like, look, their need is being met. This thing that I can't meet is being met by someone else and it brings them happiness and I'm happy to see them happy, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that every time I'm sitting at home alone because they're out to a movie with someone else that I'm like, wow, I love this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not that, but just that idea that like, wow, here's this really amazing person or this really amazing thing that my someone I love gets to do um, because of polyamory. Like that's, that's amazing, right? Mm -hmm. Like the feeling of having a crush, for example, that's such a fun feeling before the crush gets to the point where you're like, what's happening in our relationship? Just like that initial part of having a crush is like this really, really fun thing. You get to share in that with someone that you love. That's like awesome. That's so fun to watch someone be giddy about someone else. <laughs> like, it's like, yeah, that is a good feeling. Let's talk about it. What do you like about them? Oh, um, yeah, this is it's, so good. It's fun. It's, and then people think that instead you would be like pissed, but it's like, no, like, not necessarily, you don't have, that's not the only way that that can, can go, mm -hmm. right? That there is, there's another way that that can go that we don't allow for culturally that can be like this really beautiful, exciting thing. Yeah. I mean, and so I think that's a good place to start to wrap up this idea. And I know obviously with, you know, polyamory, polyamory in general, we sort of just scratch the surface, but that you're speaking to of like question assumptions, right? Like if monogamy is not working mm -hmm. for you, okay. Like if, you know, jealousy, you're told jealousy is supposed to look this way or have this benefit. Okay. Well, what if it's not really like just being willing to take a step back and be like, huh, okay, maybe not. Yeah, absolutely. My mom recently, um, had taken a, I don't know, some kind of training at her job. I don't even know what it was about. I think it was like diversity or something like that. But my mom had taken this training and she asked me, she was like, Melissa, do we ever have a unique thought? She was like, or is this everything I think come from the way that I was socialized? And I was like, I hate to tell you this. <laughs> I was like, but probably the latter. Like, 
the socialization plays such a huge role in what we believe is right and wrong or like the way that things are that, yeah, exactly what you're saying. Like question that just question what I think is normal. And so it opens up a whole new like world of understanding. Mm -hmm. So as you might remember from last time, the way we end these are with a series of sort of rapid fire ish community questions that my Patreon community, the listeners who fund and support the show, um, basically have picked eight questions this season and all eight guests will be answering the same eight questions. If you're down to answer some totally random questions. Okay. I'm ready. Um, what's something that you do purely for fun and joy? Purely for fun and joy. Uh, <laughs> play with my cats. <laughs> I feel like brings me so much joy and has no other purpose. I feel <laughs> the same about my laugh. cats. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. What's something that really makes you feel at home? <laughs> Literally being at home. I feel like I, like as an introvert and as a homebody, like all I ever want is to be literally at home. Um, and I, I think, I think it's important to say that because I think so many people have FOMO, um, you know, the fear of missing out. And I feel like there's this meme going around about Jomo, the joy of missing out. That's me. Like, like I just want to be alone. That is what makes me the happiest. I just want to be alone on my couch. That is home. Literally. That's no, I love it. What's one thing that you do in your most important relationships that you feel keeps them strong and healthy? Uh, this is more ideal than my actual practice, but I would say, um, being comfortable with confrontation, being comfortable with accountability, um, being comfortable telling someone that you, that they hurt you and being comfortable with people telling you that you've hurt them because that is so vulnerable and so hard. And it means that you both want to work through it. Yeah. I, I love that so much. And I agree that that's one of those things that I'm like, that is something I value. Do I practice that all the time? No. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. What are three things that you're feeling grateful for lately? I think it's really important. Something when I think about gratitude practices, I always try to start with the most foundational things that actually aren't found as foundational as we think. Like I am grateful that I have easy access to water. Um, I am grateful that I also have easy access to food. And I am also grateful that I get enough sleep. Yeah. <laughs> Those are things that like most people in the world don't have um, and things that we often super take for granted. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The next question is about boundaries. What's one boundary of yours that's important to you and what does it look like in your real life to enforce it? So speaking of introversion, one boundary that I need a lot of alone time. I just need so much time alone. Um, and I am getting more comfortable being just saying that like, I'm going to leave this party now because I need to be alone or I can't get dinner with you this week because I already have multiple dinner dates. Or even sometimes I have to cancel on people that day and I'll be like, it's not because I'm being flaky. It's because I just need to be alone. Like I just had too much socialization today. I need to be, or socializing. I just need to be alone tonight instead. Mm -hmm. Um, and having people in your life, it's usually helpful to have other people who are like anxious, but <laughs> having people in your life that understand that is a gift. Yeah. What's the last thing you felt really excited about? Um, what is excitement? I, last thing I felt excited about. Wow. I wish I had, <laughs> this is not rapid fire. Um, and this is making me feel really sad. I'm having an existential crisis now. <laughs> um, I, okay. Something that I'm excited about is professional and I hate picking professional things. Um, but cause it's just so me, but I'm writing an article for Bon Appetit which is like my, like a dream publication for me to write for. And I started the article today and it felt like it was actually flowing. It was like actually 
coming out of me. Um, and I'm very, very excited to be able to do that. Oh my God. I'm so excited for whatever it is that you're writing about for Bon Appetit. I'm here for that. I want to read it. It sounds amazing. Um, so the next question is about books and I am a member of your Patreon. So I read all of your awesome book reviews, (laughs) which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had a really big impact on you or that you've recently been finding yourself recommending or rereading to people? Okay. So one book that I love more than anything is The Little Prince by Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Um, I love The Little Prince. I just, I won't even start talking about it cause I won't shut up. Uh, speaking of polyamory, I think the book more than two <clears throat> is a really, really helpful. It's like, if anyone listening is like, I'm maybe interested in polyamory, like that is the number one book I would say you should read. It basically answers every question you could ever have. Um, and I find myself repeatedly being like, well, in the book, when I'm talking about it with other people. Um, so that is really useful. And then Uh, you know, I read so many books, but I feel like I read so many books that aren't actually that great. I recently, so this book just came out, the, um, the collected schizophrenias. What is a book that I've like recently read that I haven't, I think my review of it is coming out tomorrow. Um, that is a book that I've read recently that I just found really powerful and interesting. Yeah. esme has been on the show a couple of times. She's such a wonderful writer. Mm -hmm, Mm -hmm. Totally. Yeah. So the last question, if you could leave our community, the listeners with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? Uh, I would say extend your idea of compassion to yourself. Allow space for your, um, uh, I don't know, like your need to expand or your need to, to, to nourish yourself or your need to whatever, like let that be imp- as important to you as it would be to someone that you love because you should love yourself. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Um, what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new people? I am open to various ways of connecting. My website, melissafabello.com, has basically everything you could ever need from my social media to a contact form to the ebook that you can download to signing up for my newsletter. It has like basically everything that you might be looking for. So I would say the website is a place to go. Awesome. I will put links to that and other things in the show notes. Melissa, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net, so go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Hi, Nicole. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. I am as ready as I'll ever be. (laughs) I promise it's not a test. It's not hard. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Okay. So I, of course, being myself, um, wrote down your questions and took notes so that I could refer back to them so that I didn't say anything weird as I just did. Um, but I'm totally obsessed with being cozy and organizational systems and my red and happy color, happy subscription. I feel like all of those things, you just like described your Instagram profile, like your Instagram brand. Like you are very cozy and like bright and colorful and organized. And I'm into learning more about all of those things that how other people like do their lives. So yeah, you are very on brand there. (laughs) (laughs) Go me. (laughs) What's an intentional money related decision that you've made recently? So I don't know if it's necessarily recent, but I'm sort of refocusing on the idea of like enjoying the money that I make. 
I mean, after I pay myself, obviously, because I think, you know, paying yourself first is like a huge um, step. And like when you can get to that step, it's like a really important thing to do. So for the first thing that happens when I get my paycheck is some of it goes into savings or retirement or whatever. But after that, just sort of like not being so stressed about the idea that one day I'm going to retire and I need to have all this money that I can actually enjoy the money that I'm working so hard to make right now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, feel, I mean, I feel like I'm glad you're speaking to that because I think sometimes it is easier said than done, right? Like giving yourself permission to do yeah. things that are like just for you or just for fun. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, what's one thing that you've been struggling with lately that you have found challenging? Um, okay, so my lifelong struggle is getting up in the morning. And I've been <laughs> I've been trying for years and years and years, like basically since I was a teenager to figure out how to get up in the morning without being angry. Um, and so I kept like thinking to myself, okay, like all you need is a routine, but like, no, I don't just need a routine. I don't even know how people, I don't know. So then I was like, okay, how can I, what would I rather do in the morning than sleep? And the answer to that is nothing. But just here recently, I finally discovered that like I had this day when I called in a little late to work and I like got up and I took a bath and I like had a frothy cup of coffee and I read a book and I just had like an hour and a half. And I thought, God, that is so nice. What would if what would happen if I tried to do that in the morning? And so far, that is the only thing that has consistently gotten me out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. So I I have my coffee maker set. It automatically makes the coffee. I froth the milk. I get in the bathtub and I read a book every morning. So that's what I've been doing. Yeah. Whenever you post about that, it's funny because I'm like a nighttime bath person. That's my like mm-hmm. end of day wind down favorite thing to do, like watch Netflix and eat snacks in the bathtub at nighttime, basically. Mm-hmm. And right. whenever I see it, I'm like, man, I would have never thought to take a bath in the morning, but I like Right. I never would have either. And then I did it. It was like a whole thing. I mean, I also, I'll take a bath anytime. So I'm I also mean, a nighttime same. Like, person. Absolutely yeah. same. But definitely uh, try a morning bath sometime. I think okay. you'll love it. I will. You convince me. What's mm-hmm. something that you would love to learn more about this year? Um, okay. So I would love to learn a new language or, um, and also like actually refocus myself on art and calligraphy, but I would also really like to learn how to journal. And by that, I mean, I guess sit down and do it. Cause it's not really like a thing you learn to do, but I'm not very good at it. Yeah. So. The, uh, ongoing journaling practice. I always thought that was something I was supposed to do or that I was supposed to enjoy. And I don't, and that's fine. Oh, I'm, well maybe I just don't either. I, I, I like Right. I mean, obviously, I, you know, with the Friday emails and stuff, like writing as a processing thing is part of my thing. But for whatever reason, if it's not going to be read publicly, I won't do it. And for me, yeah. I find the only journaling, like personally, that works is when I'm actually trying to solve a problem. Like, what are you not being honest about, Nicole? Like, what are you, you know, where it's like a brainstorm session? Um, yeah. Which isn't to say don't journal, like, but I was, it's just funny to hear you say that because I like thought that for such a long time. And then I was like, maybe you just don't like this activity. <laughs> I, I kind of think I don't, but I do want, I do miss writing. I mean, yeah. I haven't written in years now. And so I kind of thought like, oh, maybe that would be a way to step my toe in the water because I cannot seem to get myself to write for public consumption yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I hear you. Um, but no, maybe you're, maybe you're right. I should definitely consider that I just don't like this, <laughs> <laughs> which might be like, isn't that the answer to everything? Just consider that maybe you just don't like this. Maybe you just don't want to do it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people were more open and honest about? Um, you know, I, the processes that they use to get the results that they get. Um, and I mean, I think we're all wishing people would be more open and honest about their failures, but like the processes that result in the failures that then result in the successes, I guess would Mm -hmm. be a huge thing for me. Yeah. I'm interested in like, 
you know, for example, let's say something didn't work out. Like, what did you then change for the second time around? Or like, how do people iterate on right. stuff? I'm really interested exactly. in. I tend to get that question a lot in the realm of long distance hiking. Like, oh, what are you doing differently this year than last year? Like, what's changed? Yeah. Right? Like that idea that like when you know better, you do better. Right? I'm interested yeah. in that too. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible. Since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the cost of producing the show and helps to pay the guests each season. Can you share why you decided to support the show? Um, well, if I'm being perfectly honest, you and I have known each other since like the beginning of the internet. Since the beginning know, like, of the internet, you are like, correct. Yes. Like a long, long time. And I wanted to support you. So um, the show is sort of like a less important part of it, but I feel like I should support the people who are who I know and care about who are doing the work that I would like to be doing. Mm. That, well, that's very flattering. I love that. Thank you. Um, is there anything that you have enjoyed about being either in the community or any of the bonuses or anything? Um, I really like um, sort of the direction that you've taken in the last few years to be more um, sort of acknowledging of your privilege and exploring like difficult and uncomfortable conversations with people. And I really like the in that in the community, even though I don't participate in it probably as much as I could or should or whatever. I don't know about should, but could. Um just that everybody is very willing to be open and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, me too. It continue. I mean, I don't know why it continues to surprise me. Like everyone, this is like a community of people who are interested in exactly that thing. But every time people are willing to like jump into a conversation or even, I mean, on the new Instagram account, it's, you know, been happening on the topic of like friendship and people are just willing to be like, hey, here's what's true for me. And like that mm-hmm. is the most like comforting and empowering thing. So I'm always really grateful too when people do that. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to share where you live and like a social media link or something so people can say hi? I live in Dallas, Texas, and the only social media that I am currently using is Instagram, and you could find me at Ray Michelle, and I assume you'll put a link because it's real hard to spell, <laughs> uh, but it's, <laughs> it's R-A-E-M-E-S-H-E-A-L-L-E, and you can thank my grandmother for that middle name. Oh, I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to Patreon patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. That support means so much to me and we'll have so much fun getting to know each other after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together like this one. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can and no matter what, we're in this together. (laughs) 